We are in the book of Genesis. Part of me is kind of sad because it's like winding down. We're on chapter 44. How many chapters are there in Genesis? Who knows? 50. So we're getting really close to the end. We're in the eighth inning right about now. And so um, anybody curious on which book we're going to do next? Anybody curious? Well, I'll tell you anyway. Uh, <laughs> I think we're going to go to the Gospel of Luke. We've already in our church done Matthew and Mark, and so we'll just go back because I'm, I'm, I want to learn more about Jesus. And of course, we've seen Jesus all over Genesis, right? So it's been really cool. So our scripture reader this morning is Amy Scott. So Amy, if you'd come on up. I, yeah, a, yeah, Amy. Yeah, I mean, you hesitate. I'm thinking, did I just call her the wrong name? <laughs> so Amy is the lovely wife, Eugene, over here, and uh, their daughter, Michaela. And then they also have Addison, who went back to the service, and we are excited to have their their family as part of our church. Yes, ma'am, use that one. And if you'll stand over here where you can see that. Um, and I want to take this time to kind of educate our church as to why we do things the way we do. Like when we have, when we read the scripture, we make a big deal of it. And I usually try to have someone else do it. So it's not just all about Gary, but uh, in churches, the word of God is not being held highly anymore. And Paul told Timothy in chapter uh, four, verse 13, he says, until I come, devote yourself. That's a pretty heavy word. Devote yourself to what? The public reading of scripture. In many churches, they read one verse and then they take off and it's just a bunch of pop psychology and stories, but we're here to exalt the word of God. Amen. And so, uh, and then my job is to exhort and teach, but our job as a church is to pay attention to the public reading of scripture. So Amy's going to do that for us this morning. and We're glad she's here. Join it. Uh, uh, she's going to read aloud as you follow along on the screen. Genesis 44. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? It is not from this that they, it is not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination. You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak, or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. 
But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our, younger bro our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our younger brother is, youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all of my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. How many of you remember, like maybe on the first week of school, which is coming up, your teacher giving you the, uh, the pay attention test? And uh, what it, basically, what the first instruction was, read everything before you do anything. And of course, then the second one was write your name down, do all this stuff. And then by the time you got to 9, 10, 11, it was like stand up and quack like a duck and all kinds of crazy stuff. And those who followed the instructions read everything. And the last instruction was only do number one and two and then sit quietly. And of course, then all these other people who weren't following the instructions were making all these noises and standing up and doing all kinds of stuff. And... The teacher could find out who was thoroughly following instructions and who wasn't. And this is going to be the test that you see here this morning is Joseph is putting his brothers to a test. And he's got a lot of schemes behind the test. He wants to show, are they really honest? Are they really jealous of Benjamin like they were of him? Will they do the right thing? Do they care for their father? Joseph has really thought through these tests, and we're in the middle of the tests. And so what has happened prior was, just to give you more backstory for those who are new to this, have been here in the last few weeks, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Specifically, it was Judah's idea, and Judah's the main character of this chapter, so that's kind of a, a turn of sorts. And so he became a slave, but he became such a great slave that Potiphar put him in charge of all of his household, 
But then Potiphar's wife falsely accused him of rape, so he got put into prison. But once again, rather than moaning and complaining and becoming depressed, he became the best prisoner to where he was basically assistant warden. So then uh, two guys had dreams. He interpreted their dreams. One resulted in the guy dying. The other one resulted in the guy being restored back to Pharaoh's servant. And then Pharaoh has dreams and nobody can interpret them. So this guy's, hey, I remember this guy in prison named Joseph. He interpreted the dreams and let's get him. He interprets the dreams of seven years of prosperity and seven years of severe famine and drought. And so Pharaoh, here's what you need to do. You need to put someone in charge of all the grain in Egypt, set aside 20% for the, during the good years so that we have enough to eat and even sell the seven bad years. And Pharaoh's like, man, that's a great idea. Why don't you do it? So he goes from the dungeon to second in command of the greatest empire on earth at that time. So you talk about an overnight success. Joseph was it. And so that brings us here to Genesis 44. And we're going to divide just in three parts. First of all, there's the sting operation. And secondly, there's the sorry offenders. And then we'll finish with the sacrificial offer. So um, in verse 1, it says, Then he, this is Joseph, commanded the steward of the house. Remember, this steward had became to Joseph what Joseph was the Potiphar. He was in charge of everything. He really trusted this guy. And I believe the steward is a picture of the Holy Spirit. But that, just keep that in mind as we're reading through here. And he said, Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry. The last time it was enough for their journey. This time it's load these donkeys down. Now, in some countries, they can load mules down as much as 800 pounds. Okay? In fact, in India, they were loading animals like this down so much that it was considered animal abuse. And the, the Indian government had to pass a law saying no more than 440 pounds. Okay, that was the max. And people, because people were going well beyond that. And so these animals can carry a lot. And so this was enough grain for them to last for a long time to plant part of it because they had nothing to plant and then to eat the rest. And it says, and each man's money in the mouth of his sack. This is an important detail because these 12 men each had different, well, 11 of them now, uh, each of them had different size clans that they were in charge of. And so they brought enough food based on how much they had, which they were fairly wealthy, but almost how much they needed the size of their clan. So one guy might have 34 shekels of silver and 12 shekels of gold, and that's how he was going to pay for it. And the other guy had a different quantification of the money. So they put it back exactly the way they had received it, even though they were supposed to buy the grain. Now remember how much money they did bring, bring this time. They brought double because they got refunded their money the last time. They thought, well, maybe this is a mistake. We don't want to get in trouble. So we'll bring the original money back and we'll bring more money to buy grain again this time. And of course, again, Joseph puts all of it back. The double the money is put back in their sacks. He said, but this time, here's the sting operation. I want you to take my cup, my silver cup. So he's saying, this is a cup that belongs to me, but it's not just any old one of my cups. It's my silver cup. So this was a majestic cup that showed who he was, just like the king had his own certain cup, and it was probably gold. The second in command had his own special cup, and it was silver. But this was, in, in this pagan culture, each of one of these leaders might have a cup that they used to practice divination. What is divination? 
Well, first of all, the Bible forbids it later when Moses comes along. But it's also it's a way to speak to the spirit world, but not to God. Kind of like reading tea leaves or reading palms or tarot cards. We're not sure exactly what they did, but sometimes they would sprinkle a certain herb in their wine. They would drink it, and then when, they, when the cup was empty, they look at the residue at the bottom, and they would try to interpret it. Sometimes they would take something and shake it up, and they'd spill it, and they'd do it. But that silver cup was part of that speaking to the spirit world to know the future. And so they put this in the sack of the youngest. Who is the youngest? Benjamin, right? And then put it with his money for the grain. And he, they, he did as Joseph told him to. So this steward is very dependable. This sting operation would not have gone down right if the steward is not being obedient. Okay, He's doing what he's told, and his character shines through in the background. And as soon as morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. So I think it doesn't say they were driven away. The, the Hebrew talks about two words, sent away and driven away. If I, I see you off to the airport, that means I'm kind of blessing you and and then seeing you out the door and thanking you for being my guest. These men were sent away in a good way. They weren't driven out. But they're also with their donkeys, which is kind of a funny footnote to me because when, when the first sting operation happened, they, when they were being called in for lunch, they thought, oh man, he's trying to trick us. He's trying to make us slaves. And he's trying to steal our donkeys. Like the, the second fan of Egypt wants your donkeys. But So the footnote Moses says, and, and they even walked away with their donkeys in this situation. And then verse 4 says, and they had gone only a short distance. I mean, literally, they're like, who knows, 30 minutes away. They're not very far. And Joseph says to the steward, hey, get up, go follow them. And here's what I want you to do. When you overtake them, when you catch up with them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? So they'll be thinking, what evil have we done? Notice there's no accusation. Why? It's not, why have you stolen the silver cup? He wants to leave out a generic evil accusation so their mind will race back to all the evil things they've done, which the biggest of which is we sold our brother into slavery. And so your brother comes to you with a good thing, sharing his dreams and you repay him for evil. But he leaves the question vague on purpose. And he says, is it not from this that my Lord drinks? Again, he hasn't mentioned the cup and they're like, what? What does he drink from? He wants them to put the pieces of the puzzle together slowly. And by this, he practices divination. And again, the Bible forbids this, but there's, I would believe that Joseph's not doing this. I think this is part of the ruse. This is part of the trick. And I'll give you some clues as to why that is later. But secondly, we could also say Joseph is not under the law yet that forbids it. But I still don't think he would do it because it was wrong. I think it just kind of went with the culture, but he wasn't practicing it. He said, but you guys have done evil in this site. What is the evil you've done? You stole something. But did they actually steal it? No, it's, it's, it's part of the sting operation. And he's testing them. He wants to see if they've truly repented. He wants to know if their hearts are right. And in previous tests, they kind of failed it, barely, or in some cases they kind of passed it with a C minus. Today, they're gonna, I believe they're going to pass, especially Judas, with, with flying colors. So when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And he does exactly what Joseph says. Why does Lord, and, and he told them all those things. And he said, why does my Lord, and this is the, the brother speaking to the servant, Speak to us such words. Where did, where did you get this idea from? Who, us? Why would we do such things? And he says, far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Now, pay attention to that phrase, far be it. Okay, it'll pop up later. And Moses is trying to get, help you to see something here. And so, but really, 
far be it from us. We're like super good guys. We would never do such a thing like that. Oh yeah, you um, sold your brother into slavery. And that's after only you were talked out of murdering him. Okay, you guys have profited, tried, or at least attempted to profit from this in the past. You've deceived your own dad for decades. Oh, but far be it from us to do anything like that. <laughs> they, ha- they still, at the beginning of this test, they have a high and mighty view of themselves. And of course, we all do at times, don't we? We think, oh, I would never do that. Be careful about what you say about never. We, we are not as good as we think we are. And, we're, and other, we tend to see other people through a lens that makes them think that they're worse than they are, but we're better than we are. And of course, all that comes down to one word, and that's pride. Pride is, is, helps us not to see 2020 like we should. So behold, the money. Remember when you put money in our sacks before? We brought it back to you. And now you're accusing us of stealing. Well, wait a minute. How long did it take to bring the money back? Did they bring it back right away? Nope. <laughs> they stayed and stayed till the food that they were given ran out. And they knew they had to come back to Egypt for more food. And it was only then that they realized, well, we better bring the money back because we, we, they're going to say, well, hey, last time you were here, you didn't pay. So they're not bringing it back because they're so honest. Their dad told them to bring it back because they, they didn't want to be, be caught. And so how then could we, I mean, great guys like us, steal silver or gold from the, my Lord's house, from Joseph's house? Proverbs 21, 2 says it this way. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. We, we justify our own actions. Even when we do wrong, we say, well, I had an excuse. You know, well, I wasn't feeling good that day, whatever. And then when other people do wrong, we're like, oh man, I can't believe they would do I would never do such a thing. And that's just sinful human nature. We need to keep that in check. Does that ever go away, Gary? Uh, no, <laughs> it doesn't. You will always have that bias towards yourself. And we will always justify our own actions. And this is what Proverbs says, but, but the Lord weighs the hearts. The Lord knows. And so the trick is, if the Lord is weighing my heart, if he's looking at keeping the balances straight, I need to not see myself through my eyes, but see myself through God's eyes. And that's possible through the word. There is a direct correlation between how much time you spend meditating on the word and how you see yourself accurately. Accurately. Have you ever noticed that conceit is one of those diseases that makes everybody else sick but the person who has it? So we do all we all do have our blind spots, and we need to lean upon the Lord and His Word to see ourselves accurately. He says, So whichever of your servants is found shall die. Wow. Okay, so and we don't know if all the brothers are speaking up about this collectively, if it's Judah. You'll see later that Judah is the main spokesman now. And on top of that, Whoever has the the cup, not only will they die, the rest of us will be your slaves or your servants. And so this is really wild. So this the degree of confidence the brothers have in one another is pretty impressive. You see, if I was, let's say, uh, Levi, I'd be like, I bet it was Reuben. (laughs) I'm not speaking of, check my bag, but I bet you find it over there. I'm surprised that out of all these brothers, they are all speaking up with one voice saying, we didn't do it. And I, I can trust all my brothers that we didn't do it. So either this is cockiness or these men have changed. Because I think if this accusation was made 20 years ago, they would have all been pointing fingers at each other. So I don't know how to read this, but I believe it possibly is progress. 
Also, what's gone on here is what's called the ancient laws of judicial settlement. Um, you might recognize this um, stone here. This is Hammurabi's Code. Hammurabi's Code is very ancient and old, and uh, it even predates Moses' law. And it wasn't perfect. As you'll see, the Bible takes what's good of Hammurabi's Code and makes it better and gets rid of what's not good. And this Hammurabi was an ancient Persian who set out these things, and many civilizations adopted it. And one of the things was, if someone catches you and accuses you of a crime that can't really be proven, what you can do is throw out, okay, if, if what your accusation is true, then we'll do this. But if it's not true, you drop it here now. There's no court case. Because people can always, you know, file a, a suit, get lawyers, meet in, at the courtroom on October 30th or whatever. They didn't do all that. They took care of it right then and there on the spot most of the time. And so he, they're making an offer. If what you're saying is true, here's our punishment. Now, the one making the accusation, according to Habarabi's code, could then say, all right, I accept the way you said it. They couldn't increase the punishment, but they could decrease it. And so that's what you'll see will happen here in a second. The steward's going to decrease it. He says, let it be as you say, but he's not going to do exactly as they say. He's saying, basically, I accept your offer of let's do a settlement here and there. But instead of the person who is caught dying and the rest of you become servants, we're going to make it the person who is caught will become my slave. The rest of you will go free. So, man, he has dropped the charges way down, but he's still agreeing to the settlement. So then each man quickly lowered his sack. You see, if they, were, if they thought they were guilty, they'd be like uh, him hawing around. But they're like, no, no, we want to show you right now that we are, we are innocent. They think they are. And they lowered the sack to the ground. Each man opened his sack. And he searched the beginning, watch this, with the eldest to the youngest. How does the steward know who's the oldest and who's the youngest? Joseph has told him. What happened when they ate dinner, lunch together? They see them oldest, youngest. They're like, how does this guy know our ages? We haven't told that who's the oldest, youngest. And you say, well, it's pretty easy in any family to do that. Not in this family. How many different moms are there? Four. Several sets of Irish twins going on here, I think is what the phrase for it. And so, but that also adds to the drama. Let's start with, with, with Reuben. Let's work all the way down. Going to Levi, Simeon, Judah, and on down the list. And it's like, see, see, see. And they get to the youngest and like, oh, silver cup. And now they're like, they're all torn. And that brings us to the sorry offenders. The sorry offenders. So then they tore their clothes. To this day in the Middle East, people show grief and mourning by tearing their clothes. And it's a way to get out the, the uh, emotion, which again, they just said, they just said, you know, we agree. You can take whoever is caught as your slave for life. And they're like, no, our dad's favorite. We promised dad nothing bad will happen to Benjamin. We have to bring him because Pharaoh's assistant said we had to. Or we won't get any food. And we've, here we are on our way home. Whew, everything's going to be okay. And this guy catches up with us. We make this crazy promise that, yeah, kill us all, you know, and, uh, or kill him. And, and, but now they know that they've lost their, their brother and dad is going to be grief-stricken and dad will probably have a heart attack and die on the spot. They are truly sorry for what's going on here. It's interesting, the last time they lost a brother, they could care less. Remember they threw him in a pit, they had a meal, and then their slave traders got him and took him off, and they're like, yeah, whatever. 
We'll just lie to dad. We'll take, we'll dip his coat in blood and say, look, daddy died. And we'll live with that lie for decades. But now they truly are grief stricken. Do you think the brothers are changing? Yes. Do you think Joseph's test is working? It obviously is. Proverbs 29 says, do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than him. How many times have we, including me, said something, boom, knee-jerk reaction, oh man, I wish I hadn't said that. We do that all the time. We make agreements when we shouldn't. Instead of saying, hey, let me have a day to think about this. We quickly want to answer things, whether it's in anger or in passion or enthusiasm or impatience. We say things we shouldn't often. And the Bible calls that foolishness, that we shouldn't behave in activity. James 1.19 says it this way. Let every person, every person includes who? Us, right? Be quick to hear. That means really listen, listen, listen. And then be slow to speak. Hmm. Think about it. And also we should be slow to anger. But look at the first two. God is reminding us all the time we have two ears and one mouth. We should be doing twice as much listening, listening patiently, slowly speaking. But these brothers pop off. Man, whoever you find it, kill them and make the rest of us slaves without stopping to think, wait a minute, what if we were trapped? What if someone set us up? You know, again, they, they bit off more than they could chew. So then when Judah and his brothers, notice who, Judah's the fourth oldest, but he, it's like Judah and his brothers. He is stepping up as the leader. 22 years ago, he stepped up as the leader saying, hey, let's, let's sell him into slavery. He was leading in a bad way. Now he's leading in a good way. Many of you in this room have leadership skills. And you can be just as destructive with your leadership as you can be beneficial to those around you. And all of us lead in some way or another. We need to lead by example. We need to lead by our words. We need to lead by our life. And what kind of leadership skills do you have? And are they being used for the glory of God? Here, Judah's starting to have a change of heart. He's stepping up. He's becoming a, a leader here. And so he came to Joseph's house. And he was still there. Joseph was still there in his house. And they fell before him to the ground. This is the third time. This is the fulfillment of the dreams. Remember Joseph's dreams? that the, the, the stars, the sun, and the moon will bow down to him, bow down three times. The second dream, they're all in the field harvesting, making stalks of grain, and that all the other stalks come down and bow down to his stalk. And so here's God's dream that he gave to Joseph coming perfectly true, that for the third time they are bowing down before him. Of course, they still don't know that it's him. So Joseph says, what deed... In other words, you've done it, you're guilty of a crime here. What crime is this you've done? Do you not know that a man, watch this here, like me, he didn't say that I practice definition. He said, don't you know that someone in my position could if they wanted to? This to me is evidence. This is Joseph saying, saying, I'm not doing this. I don't do definition. I get dreams from God. Why do I need divination? I don't need to practice tarot cards or Ouija boards or whatever. I can get here directly from God. He said, I could though, like me, because he's still playing the part, this is still in the thing operation. And Judah said, what shall we say, my Lord, and what shall we speak? And the word say here means, what can we say in our defense? And what shall we speak? What would our case even be? How can we even clear ourselves? Three rhetorical questions. And the answer is we can't. 
we, we, there's nothing we could say to get us off the hook here. Wait a minute. Did Benjamin really steal the silver cup? No, he didn't. But Judah knows something bigger is going on here. Every time we turn around, something weird is happening. It's like someone knows who we are and how we act. <laughs> Joseph does, doesn't he? But they don't know Joseph. So Joseph has inside information. Judah is finally embracing, you know what? God is trying to reveal that we've did we, this sin against our brother. We're just getting caught in a different way. And that's the way it works out. How many times, if you watch crime shows based on real crimes, where someone who stole something or murdered someone gets pulled over for an expired registration? They get caught for that, and guess what? That's how they expose that they're the murderer. So they get pulled over one for one dumb thing to only catch them for another. And this is what's happening here. Basically, Judas embracing the whole idea, hey, we didn't really steal the cup, but God knows that we're guilty and we're just being accused of something different than the main crime. And it does, he asked these questions three times, which in the Bible, when you repeat something, it's for emphasis. If you say it three times, it's for completeness. It's like Jesus said, truly, truly, I say unto you for emphasis. But when the Bible talks about God's holiness, how many times does it say it? Holy, holy, holy. He's saying, we completely don't have a case here. <laughs> There's nothing we could say. I could go on and on about Benjamin didn't do it. Somebody stuck it in a sack, just like you guys stuck mine in our sack. But he's accepting the consequences, even if it's not for the exact same crime. And here, he says it right here. God has found out the guilt of our servants. Yeah, we're guilty. Maybe not out of the cup, but for something much, much worse. We sold our brother into slavery. We are our, the Lord's servants, both, both we and he also whose hand the cups. So remember the deal that they settled on was, the original deal was, the one you find it will die, all of us will be slaves. The counter is, the counteroffer was, only the one who gets caught will be the slave, the rest of you go free. And now he's saying, we'll, we'll all be your servants. So he's offering to pay more penance than they're actually being charged with, because that wasn't the deal. But that shows he's truly sorry. But he said, far be it from me. Remember that phrase? The brother said, well, far be it from us that we'd ever steal anything, when they really were guilty. But now Joseph, he knows their words. He says, well, far be it from me that I should do so to you. I, I appreciate you giving a counteroffer, but we're not gonna, we're not gonna do that. We're gonna stick to what the steward said. Only the one in whose hand the cup shall be found, Benjamin, will be the servant. But as for you, the rest of you brothers, go up in peace to your father. This is a test. This is a test. The last time they, have, they had a brother in a pit, they all abandoned him. So this time they got a brother who's going to be in the dungeon. And he's like, yeah, you guys can go away. Go eat lunch if you want and just go back to your dad. He wants to see, are they going to abandon Benjamin like they abandoned him? He's, he's, history has a way of repeating himself. And this is a test. Will they pass it? Let me ask you a question. In what ways are you being tested in your life right now? What challenges are happening? It's not just bad luck. We don't believe in that. We do believe in a sovereign God who is orchestrating things. The layoff, the divorce, the cancer, the wayward child that you put, you fill in your blank. God, none of these caught God by, oh man, I didn't see that coming. God is the one weaving this tapestry of your life to grow you into something better. Will you choose to be better or choose to be bitter? 
God is going to see what your reaction is, what, what's your test. You see, you, you might be dealing with a very stressful job. It's a test. Will you pass? God is testing you every day on how you spend your money. Will you be care, careless and impulsive, or will you be generous and responsible? God is testing you in your relationships. He wants to see, will you, will you be faithful? Will you be loyal? God is testing you in all these things. What's your big test right now? Listen to what James says about your test. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the what? The test, he will receive the crown of life. That's not talking about eternal life. It's talking about a special reward, which God has promised to those who love him. That's what the test is about. Do you love me? Do you love me? Remember Job's test? Multiple tests. And he's, Job passed the flying colors. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And God's like, see Satan? He really does love me for me, not just for all the stuff. Let me tell you this. Don't get discouraged because testing is not meant to ruin who you are. Testing is meant to reveal who you are. You don't know how good the tea is until you put it in hot water, right? That's what a test is all about. There is bad theology out there that if everything is going good in your life, God's blessing you, and everything's bad going in your life, God is, is punishing you. That is not true. A test is to, is to make things difficult to show what is really inside of you. When your teacher tests you in school, she's not trying to show how stupid you are. She's trying to show how smart you are. So, but tests are hard. That's why we study for them. We prepare for them. And God allows them for a reason. So uh, we were up in uh, Nacogdoches, Texas for a volleyball tournament this week. And there was a lady who had a daughter on the, t on the team. And my daughter's on a different team. Uh, but we're on the same uh, homeschool association. And she introduced herself to me because she's just on the volleyball side. And up until now, it always on the basketball side. So our families never crossed paths. And I asked, asked where they live. And she said, well, I live over there where Pearland meets Friendswood. I said, oh, Pearwood. And she goes, what? And I said, you know, Pearwood, that's what they call it, where Pearland meets Friendswood. And I said, you know, the Pearwood Skate Center? And she goes, I live right across the street from that. I never even knew that that's why they called it that. And it's interesting. And she wasn't a dumb person, but there are some things that hide in plain sight, especially our own sins especially our own character flaws. They could be right in front of us and we don't see them. But others do. <laughs> and pro probably the people closest to you see them the most. But we have blind spots. It's, it's part of our sinful nature that we don't see the things right in front of us. And that's what God creates difficult tests for so you can see, wow, I really am that selfish. Wow, I really am the cause of some of these problems. And God is using those tests to hopefully to reveal it. But because of our stubbornness, we don't always pass. That brings us to the third point, the sacrificial offer. The sacrificial offer. Again, Judah is going through quite the transformation here. Then Judah, chapter seems to be about him. He's the primary character. Went up to him and said, oh my Lord. And when he says he went up to him, it's like he's asking for a private audience. He's pulling him aside. He said, oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. I don't want anybody else to hear this. Can you and I convene to the side here? So Joseph and him probably walk off to the side here. And what you're about to read here is the longest speech in Genesis. 
So this, this really matters. And I'm not going to comment too much of it because I, I don't want to reread what Amy already read for us so well. But here's what he says. Let not your anger burn against your servant. You have, you have a right to be angry, but if you could please be merciful, because we realize we're in big trouble here. You are just like Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh has told you, do whatever you want. <laughs> You're in charge. And in fact, later, Joseph says, I have become a father to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's learning from me. We've had a role reversal here. So, so we know we are in serious uh, situation right here. My Lord has asked his servants, saying, have you a father or a brother? So he's retelling the whole story, which I'm sure Joseph is t- trying to show him what the situation is. And he says, and we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a young brother, little child of his old age, and his brother is dead. Remember, previously they, they kept saying, our brother is no more, no more. They didn't want to really say the word he's dead, okay? And as far as they know, it wasn't true, but now they're dealing with it. And he says, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. And this phrase here, his father loves him, means he's the favorite. Not that he loves, he loves all of us, but he has an unusual and yes, an even unhealthy love for this child. And you'll see why he explains it even better later. He said, then you said to your servants, he's reminding them of his promises. He says, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy, the boy can't leave his father. If he should leave his father, his, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. And we went back to your servant, my father. We told him again the words of my Lord. And when, and again, it's not talking about God, little L, the, uh, my, my master is what they're saying here by Lord. He said, go again and buy us a little food. And we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant said to my, said, I'm sorry, then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. What's wrong with that statement there? Jacob has how many wives? Four. But he acts like he only has one, because in his mind he only does. And he says, he bore me two sons, and he has 12. But in his mind, I only got one wife that I really love, and I only have two sons that I really love. The rest of you guys, you're just annoying, is basically what he's saying. But he's telling the truth. And think about this. This is the dad who's been so ugly to all these brothers and has played favoritism like nobody else has ever done. And yet this is the dad he's trying to protect. I mean, what is the threat here? That if, we, if all this shakes out, dad's going to have a heart attack and die. You think he'd be like, let him. He doesn't care about us. I don't care about him. But here he is practicing what Jesus says, love your enemies. And his dad happens to be one of his enemies. He's showing incredible compassion. Before, he had no compassion on Joseph. And now he's showing tremendous compassion for his dad. One left me, and he's quoting his dad here, and surely has been torn to pieces. And he puts it in quotes because that's like a direct quote. He believes his dad was ripped apart by an animal because we lied about the whole thing. And, And I have never seen him since. If you take this one, Benjamin, from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil. I'll die in a really evil way and I'll go down to the grave. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy's not with us, just, you know, he didn't call him Joseph, but whatever he called him, my Lord, if we go home without Benjamin, his life is bound up in that boy. This is a really interesting phrase. In fact, 
Here's your chiastic structure for the day to show you what the scripture is trying to tell us. Verse 27 talks about his father and all that his family means. And verse 32 ends with the father. And then it proceeds inward on the sandwich here. And if, if the boy's not with us, and if the boy's not with us, here is the middle of the story. His life is bound up in the boy's life. My dad's life is all about this one son, Benjamin. It was all about Joseph, but he's gone. His whole life, think about this, is tied. The word bound up, like it means like literally if you're tying someone together, okay? These guys are knitted together. That's all my dad thinks about. That's all my dad cares about is this one son. If you take this one son from him, he's going to die. And again, the Bible is not condoning this. The Bible is pointing out that this guy has an unhealthy attachment to his son. Dr. Timothy Keller says this, an idol is a good thing that has become an ultimate thing. Children are good things. But when your children become ultimate things, there's something unhealthy going there. This is why parents at Little League baseball games meet umpires on the parking lot and shoot them. They beat them up because their kids' sports have become an ultimate thing. And these parents are living out their life through their kids. And that their kids misbehave in school and a teacher, they go and they threaten the teacher. Okay, Think about what in your life that your life is so wrapped up in, so bound up in, that any threat to it would cause you just like to want to die. This is where Jacob's at, and we're all guilty of this. What, what is it that your life is bound up in? What is it? Maybe a person, it may be a thing, it may be something about you, your career, your fitness, your health, you name it. What is it that if you lost, you would think, oh, I don't even want to live anymore? And another way of identifying an idol is anything that you will sin in order to get. What is it that you do regularly, a sin that you commit regularly in order to get something? That's identifying your idol. Or you can flip that coin. What is it that if you, uh, if you don't do it, if you don't get it, you will sin? So you, sometimes we sin in order to get it, and sometimes we sin when we don't get it. That's a great way of identifying the idols in our life. Benjamin had become the replacement idol in Jacob's life. So he says, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. These guys were sure of it. And your servant will bring down the gray hairs of your servant and father with sorrow to Sheol. So this is going to come true. My dad's not just blowing smoke. I believe this is going to, uh, Judah's saying, I really believe this is going to happen. For your servant became a pledge. This word pledge is the same thing we read about. And this is Judah talking here. The same Hebrew word when it's translated in the Greek in the New Testament is saying that the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge for your salvation. In other words, the Holy Spirit has put himself on the line that, I, that he will keep you secure. You're sealed to the day of redemption. That he is the earnest of our salvation. He's the pledge of our salvation. And so he says, if I do not bring him back, then I will shall bear the blame before my father all my life. And the word blame here doesn't just mean people are going to just point at me and say he's guilty. It means I'm going to bear the burden, the responsibility, I'm going to have to do all, replace all the damages in, involved with this. Now, therefore, please, and you can hear the earnest in his voice, uh, this private conversation off to the side. He's begging this guy, please let your servant remain instead of the boy. Wow. Judah's come a long way, hasn't he? He's the jerk that wanted to sell his brother into slavery, 
And now he's the one that's saying, hey, I will become a slave for the rest of my life. Now, don't just read through that and think, oh, that's cool. He's saying, I will not go home to my wife and my kids and my grandkids, my career. All of it is gone. I am not going back to the promised land. I will die a slave in Egypt. I am willing to do that to let Benjamin go free. And I'm willing to do that to let Benjamin go free so my dad doesn't die. Man, and this is the dad who's been a jerk to him. And yet, what amazing love he is showing. The older brother, this is important here, the older brother is willing to take the place of the younger brother in order to please his father. Jesus, our older brother, took the place of us, the younger brother, in order to please his father. This is what a picture we see. This is the gospel here in Genesis 44. Think about the, pro- the prodigal son. Now that story is really named wrong. It should be the two sons who were jerks. Okay, So this is the, the story here that the, the one the younger brother says, I want my inheritance now. And he goes and he spends it all on pro- prostitutes and drinking. Then he comes home broke and says, Dad, make me, make me a slave. I'd, I'd, ra- I'd rather be a slave for you. I don't, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. And he's like, no, no, you are my son. I love you. Let's throw a big party. The older brother was jealous. Here's what's missing in that story on purpose. When the wayward son went out, it was the responsibility of the old, older brother to go find him. And he didn't. That was what went with the role of being the eldest, the primogenitor. They were supposed to take care of the younger siblings. And when one went missing, it was their job to go find him. And he didn't. Jesus did. We went astray from God. Jesus, the older brother, came and sought us out. Jesus says, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus is the older brother. He's the Judah in this story. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant. I will be the slave to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. You see, let him be reunited with his brothers and to go. And that's a great picture of heaven. Matthew 20, verse 28 says, the son of man not came not to serve, but to, not to be served, sorry, but to serve. And what's Judah promising? Let me serve as a ransom for my brothers. And that's what Jesus came to do, to give his life a ransom for many. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I, I can't. I can't face my dad and let him suffer this way. I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So if sinful Judah wanted so strongly to please his sinful father, Jacob, how much more does the Holy Son of God want to please his heavenly father by redeeming us, by being the ransom for us? Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess your sins, if you confess it with your mouth, I'm sorry, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. Do you know Christ this way? He's the one that took your place that should have been us on the cross. He's the one that was the Judah taking the place of the Benjamin. Judah's come a long way, hasn't he? Redemption is possible. You probably aren't as bad as Judah, and yet he turned it all around because he repented. Let me ask everyone, if you would, just to pray with me, just to bow your heads and close your eyes in a moment of quietness now. And I want you to examine yourself. Do you truly know Christ? Has there come a point in your time, point in time in your life where you let Christ take your place to be the ransom for your sins.
You can make that decision right now where you're seated. You don't need to raise your hand. You don't need to come forward. You don't need to fill out a card. You just simply have a conversation with God. It could be something like this. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm guilty. But I'm thankful that you died on the cross for me. So I'm going to make you the Lord of my life. I give it all to you because you gave it all for me. So I make you the Lord of my life. I believe you died, you were buried, and you rose again, and you did it all for me. In your own words, have that conversation with the Lord. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you that we saw an incredible transformation in the life of Judah. He went from a selfish loser to a sacrificial leader. Lord, I pray that we become more like him as we become more like Jesus. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you have more questions about how to be saved or walk with the Lord, here's my cell phone number. Please call me or text me if you're watching online or in person. I'd love to hear from you. Linda, I know you're shy, but would you come and help me with question and answer session? Okay, so if you have any questions, text them in now, or you can raise your hand if you'd rather do that. If you're online watching, the number's there on the screen. Actually, I don't have any yet right now. Anybody have any questions? Some weeks there's five or six, some weeks there's none. Any questions? All right, Caitlin, bail me out here. Oh, okay. I, I saw that. Can we do it in green? I'm like, do what in green? You want to paint the parking blocks lime green. Okay. No. No. <laughs> we are not. Any other really good Bible questions this morning? And I love green, but that's not going to happen. Oh, yes. Uh, Lisa. Man, fantastic question, but the short answer is no, because what's going to happen is they're going to all be invited, spoiler alert, next week, they're all going to be invited to come down and stay in Egypt, and they'll be fruitful and multiply in Egypt, but then another Pharaoh is going to come along, and he will be the one that enslaves them, and they grow you know, close to a million people, and then um, they, they, Moses comes and sets them free, and Moses gives them the law, and then subsequent um, laws based on those 10 will come into play with the year of Jubilee. So no, that concept is not there yet at all. So the punishment is greater. It's not like, oh, I'll be a slave at least, well, it's seven years and then I'll be set free. No, th this would have been a life sentence. Would have been, but again, it, you'll see that it's not going to happen. But very good question. Any other questions? Let's see if any other have come in via text. Here we go. You want to read this one for me? Okay. Yeah, I think I got that one. This one right here. Oh, um, how can you defend your faith? How do you defend your faith? Mm -hmm. So there's that's a great question that gets really deep, but I'll try I'll try to make a concise answer. So there's two schools of thought on defending the Bible and defending your faith. There's the apologetic side where you try to give proof and evidence, and that's called evidential faith. And then there's what's called, um, I want to say presumptuous faith, but that doesn't sound right. Um, it's a synonym for that, that um, you should believe it that because 
as you read the word of God, it changes your heart and mind. And so one person said it best that, that um, you defend your faith like you defend a lion. You just let it out of the cage. <laughs> you don't have to defend a lion. He's more than capable of defending. And so you don't have to necessarily, some people believe you don't have to defend Jesus or the Bible. You just teach people the Bible and let it change hearts. But then there's the evidential side. Like, no, you should tell people about manuscript evidence and proof for the resurrection and why creation is true and do all those things. And so that's been a debate for a few thousand years between pastors is which one works. And the answer is both. Because Thomas said, I won't believe unless I see evidence. And he said, you know, unless I see the wounds in his hands and the pierced side. And so Jesus comes through the wall and appears to him and says, here, Thomas, and he shows him the evidence. And then he says this, he said, blessed are you because you believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who have believed having not yet seen. So he's got those who believe because of evidence and those who believe without evidence, showing that there's two types of believers. So we need to be prepared to do both. But keep in mind, though, that faith comes by hearing, not by debating or arguing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. Um, when I was uh, in Bible college, um, our professor talked about this whole tension of evidential faith versus the other time. That, um, the word's going to hit me as soon as we walk out of church. But anyway, he was talking about a guy who worked at a bank and one of his coworkers was an atheist. And every time they'd have a discussion, this guy was really eager to have a discussion with him. He would quote scripture to him. He said, well, and he goes, hey, I don't believe the Bible. He said, that's okay, just, just read this verse to me. And the guy would read it, the verse or whatever, and he's like, yeah, but I don't believe the Bible. He said, that's okay. And then they would discuss. And every single time they would have the discussions, he would say, hey, would you read this verse for me? And he's like, you know, I don't believe the Bible, but I'll read it. And then eventually the guy got saved and he said, someone asked him, what was the change? He said, I kept reading the word of God and the Holy Spirit kept convicting my heart. And so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So don't enter into any discussion with anybody about apologetics without using the Bible. Give them evidence, but give them, more importantly, give them scripture. Any other that questions? to be it, unless you go into it. It does. Okay, great. Um, okay, that's the, that's the Jubilee questionnaire, right. Okay, cool. All right, well, let's stand, and we're going to be dismissed by reading. This is the, the blessing that Israel would read over each other every time they were gathered. And so join me in Numbers chapter 6, join me in verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you. Y'all are dismissed.